Uh, last night after Mass, uh, I had a, uh, a friend of mine that got in touch with me. We went to eat dinner, uh, and I was on my way, I was on my way home. Uh, and as I was coming back, I remembered that uh, Nichols' baseball team was playing. So I made a little pass out towards the ballpark, uh, and as I was passing, I saw it was in the seventh inning. I saw that the score um, was 8-6. to six. Memphis was beating Nichols. Or 8-5, to five, Memphis was beating Nichols. So I figured, I was like, let me go watch the last couple of innings. Well, as I'm walking up, I saw my sister was there. My nephew was actually happened to be there. Just like coincidence, we caught up. I went to sit with them in the outfield. Um, and as we were watching the game, uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting um, that, that Nichols in the, last, in the eighth inning scored a run. Uh, in the ninth inning, they scored three runs, and they ended up winning the game. Uh, it was really awesome. I was like, it was exciting. It was a fun game to watch. Um, if you heard a rumor about some priest sitting down the left field line heckling the third baseman, um, I, it was me. So um, not even going to lie. Uh, he was yelling at the umpire that the ball was foul, and I was asking him if it was foul, and he couldn't turn around and answer me, but I just kept asking him because I really wanted to know if he thought it was foul or fair. Whenever the umpire called the ball fair, and it was kind of loud, and it was probably a little bit too much. But anyway, um, so I, uh, but as we, after, uh, what, what was interesting is while I was watching the game, when I got there, uh, my sister and like a couple of other parents of kids and stuff were there. And as I was sitting there, they were telling me about what had happened up to that point in the game. And I mean, I could see the line score that Memphis had scored a couple of runs in kind of bunches at different times during the game, but I, I didn't know the whole story. But what I saw, we won for nothing, right? But the final score of the game was, I think, nine to eight. But it was just interesting because as I was sitting there, I, I'm getting filled in on all these back points. But from what I saw of what was going on right in front of me, um, this was a really, really awesome ex- moment. It was a really big experience. But I'm not going to lie, I, I didn't know the whole story. So for me, it was, I wasn't as invested into the game because I, I didn't know the whole story. I, I just knew the end. I just knew the, 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 the kind of payoff. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because uh, today we, we hear the transfiguration, right? Every year in Lent, the first week of Lent, we get the temptations of the Lord. And, and we get that Jesus went for 40 days and 40 nights into the desert. He fasted. And then the most obvious line in all of Scripture, right? He was hungry, and then the devil starts to tempt him, right? And as the devil starts to tempt him, the first thing that he does, he goes to the place that Jesus is weakest. Jesus is hungry, so he says, hey, you see those rocks? Turn on the bread. And that's, that's the tactic of the enemy most of the time with all of us, is that the enemy likes to aim where we are weakest. That's always the first week of Lent. That's always the first week of Lent. The second week of Lent always is the transfiguration. And the reason why I bring up this story about baseball and about going to the game is because, honestly, I think most Catholics, not most Catholics in other churches, I'm not going to say our church because we are, we are a different kind of Catholic, right? But most Catholics in other churches don't know anything about the Old Testament. <laughs> most Catholics in other churches, not our church, right? Uh, but most Catholics in other churches don't know, don't know their Old Testament and don't recognize some of the key figures and key images and things that might happen in the Old Testament. And so sometimes we might miss the backstory. We might miss the how we got here. We might miss the first seven innings, if you will, of an image that Jesus is trying to draw out, namely something like the transfiguration. We see that what happened is big. The church apparently thinks it's big because every second week of Lent we get the same reading, right? We get the transfiguration. 
But we see that whatever happened was big and it was important and it was wow, but we might miss the backstory sometimes. I think if we can understand the backstory of the transfiguration, if we can understand the backstory of today's gospel, if we can understand exactly what it is that brings us to this point and exactly what it is that Jesus is actually doing in the transfiguration, it not only will have an impact on us in our knowledge of just the of God and, and, and what's going on in this story, but it also could have a major impact on what the Lord might be wanting to do with us this length. So why, why, let's start with a, a basic question. Why was it that Jesus was transfigured? Why, why was it that this whole experience even happens, right? Like the whole, he comes up the mountain, he's in this dazzling white, his face shines like the sun, his clothes turns white in front of everybody. He has Peter, James, and John, the, these particular three guys that comes up with him. Why was it that he was transfigured? Well, there's two answers. The first answer is it says something about Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, over and over again, whenever we see that somebody, a prophet, somebody, a rabbi, somebody, a leader of the Jewish people, is going up a mountain, usually that's a clear sign that something big is about to happen. Think Moses going up the mountain, and he gets what? The Ten Commandments, right? Think Elijah going up the mountain, and what happens? God appears to him, and we're going to get to that in a second. Repeatedly, though, when someone goes up a mountain, that something big is about to happen. God is about to reveal something to us. So when Peter, James, and John are following Jesus up a mountain, there's a chance that in the back of their mind, they're thinking, hmm, something is about to happen. Think Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament. The sacrifice of Isaac, right? Go up a mountain. Repeatedly, up a mountain. Well, as, as Jesus goes up this mountain, and now the, this, this miraculous image is starting to take place in front, of the, in front of the apostles, just put yourself in the place of Peter, James, and John for a second. That all of a sudden, your rabbi, your teacher, your friend, right, is walking up a mountain, he turns to you, and all of a sudden his clothes turns bright white. His face starts to glow. And then you see these two figures flanking him. Moses on one side, and Elijah on the other. Now, we might not get the significance of that. But I promise you, a good Jew would. Because in the Old Testament, twice, there are two figures, Moses and Elijah, who beg to see the glory of God. They, they, they desire to see God's glory as if they're speaking to Him face to face. In the book of Exodus, Exodus 33, Moses actually says it. He's up, on, he's up on the mountain, he's talking to God, and he just says to God, I want to see your glory. Can I please see your glory? And what, what, what God responds to him very pl plainly is, if, if you, can, you can be in my presence, but to see me face to face, no man can see me face to face and live. So God actually says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal myself to you. I'm going to reveal my presence to you. But what I'm going to ask you to do is hide your face, let me pass, and then you can look at my back, basically. You can't see my face, but I'm going to let you see me. Because if you see my face, you cannot live. That's Moses. 
Elijah in 1 Kings 19. There's this really, really awesome and this really beautiful expression of, of God's presence to Elijah where he, he's, he's after, a, after a certain conflict that he has, he runs off, he hides in a cave, and he's waiting for God's presence. He's waiting for God to reveal himself to him. And what happens is, is that he says, he prays out to God, he says, I want to see you, I want to uh, know you, I, I want you to, to reveal yourself to me. And what happens is there's an earthquake outside, and God's not in an earthquake, and then there's a, there's a driving wind, and God's not in the wind, there's a raging fire, and God's not in the fire, right? Earth, wind, and fire, God's not in any of those things, right? But what happens? He's in the still, small, whispering voice. And when Elijah recognizes that God is passing, when, God, when, when Elijah recognizes that God's presence is there, the Scripture says that he, it, it's almost you can hear the panic in him where he rushes to wrap his face in a cloak because he knows that, like Moses... No man can see God face to face and live. And the way Scripture explains it is that it's almost like God passes, even though he's blindfolded, God passes in front of him. Kind of like if you ever like was sleeping and like a little kid came and like waved at you or like put their face right next to you and scared the heck out of you when you woke up, right? Like, like, or if you ever played hide and go seek and like somebody passed right in front of you and you knew they passed, but you just you couldn't see them. That's, that's what Elijah, that's how Elijah experiences God's presence. So, so when we see this, this image of Jesus standing on this mountain, right, back to the New Testament, back to the Gospel today, when we see this image of Jesus standing on the, on the, on the mountain, dazzling white, face shining, right, glowing, uh, Moses to one side, Elijah to the other side, what's actually happening is, is that Moses and Elijah, their deepest desire is being fulfilled. Because they finally get to see God face to face. They're finally being able to see God's face, God's presence revealed to them. And they don't have to hide and they're not going to die. Because the transfiguration, firstly, says something about Jesus. That Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, God made incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. That God made good on that promise. So he speaks to the deepest desire of both the law and the prophets. And they're fulfilled on the mountain. The second thing, that this, that, that this speaks to, that this, this mystery, the transfiguration speaks to, is that, yes, it tells us something about Jesus, 100% true. The other thing it does is that it says something about us. Because you see, Jesus is the bridge between God and man. Because He is both God and man. 
So when Jesus is revealing this to us, this is like He's revealing His glory. He's revealing His glorified body to His disciples, to His apostles, to His inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the same ones who will follow Him to the agony in the garden, the same ones who followed Him and watched Him raise somebody from the dead, right? When He reveals this to them, He's also revealing to them, He's saying, and this is your destiny as well. Because absolutely, Jesus Christ is God, but Jesus Christ is also a man. He's also fully human. And he's saying that this is your destiny as well. He's not just saying it to Peter, James, and John. He's saying it to you. He's saying it to me. He's saying, like, my, my glory shining through, uh, through my face, like my glory shining through everything that I am, Jesus Christ is saying that I want this to happen to you as well. I want my glory to shine through you as well. Because on the day of our baptism, whether we realize it or not, when we were baptized, we received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So think about this for a second. Right now, if you are baptized, you have Jesus Christ, or you have Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, God's presence itself, Himself dwelling within you. The most important day of our life is our baptism. Because God's divine life is indwelling in you right now. And it just wants to be shown. It just wants to be revealed. The problem is, is our sin, our, 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 our limitedness, our doubt, our fear, those things oftentimes snuff out the flame. They break down the glow. I, I remember years ago um, when I was a kid, my, uh, my grandparents, <clears throat> they lived in an in a old, old plantation-style house. Um, and I remember like on their, on their mantle, they used to have one of the old uh, oil lamps if you remember, like it was a, it was this glass. It almost looked like a vase, but at the bottom there was oil, right? And it had a wick that came up, and you had to kind of trim it. You can light the wick, and then on top there, there was like the glass, like like thing to protect the flame, right? Like it was like the the deal to to make sure that it wouldn't just blow out. Um, and I remember like one day, me and my cousins, my grandpa was showing us how it worked. So I filled it up with oil, and, and we lit it and everything else. And then, of course, me being the little fire bug that I was, I'm, like, turning the wick all the way up, so I got a 14-inch, you know, kind of flame coming off the top of it. But, like, we were playing around with it and, like, took all the lights off and everything. And I remember for years, this thing would sit on the mantle, and I would see it, and it was like, oh, yeah, that's a really cool deal. But the second that we, like, pulled it down and started lighting it and playing with it, the first time we lit it and then put the like the, the protector over it, the, the pr first time we did it, what we saw was like we saw all of, the, all of the, the, the gross, like all the dust and the smudges and just everything that was still kind of left over years and years of it just sitting on the mantle. 
I think that it's a, it's a kind of cool image that for us to think about. Like what, what happened was is that we, we stopped focusing so much on the light and we started focusing on all the smudges and imperfections. I think the same thing happens with us. We don't, we, so often we lose sense of that there's, a, there's, there's divine light, there's divine life that is living within us, and sometimes we can get so focused on the smudges and the dust and the scratches. Instead of recognizing that divine life is there. You, you, you see, when, when God looks at us, He doesn't want to just see, He doesn't, he, he doesn't want us just to focus on all of the smudges, <laughs> all the imperfections. He, he wants to clean those off so that His light could shine more perfectly and more brightly. Similar image in, in the 1500s. Uh, there was a there was a commissioning of a of a statue of David um, from the Old Testament. There was a commissioning of a statue of David, uh, and and this person uh, it was in it was in Europe, and uh, the, the commissioner right uh, asking for the statue of David to be to be to be sculpted. What they did was is they provided this block of marble, and they said like different sculptors, different famous sculptors were coming up and saying, ah, no 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 thank you, I'm not I'm not going to take the job because they saw that the marble itself was just imperfect. Like it, it wasn't a good piece of marble. It was low quality marble. It's kind of like a cook saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just cook with, like, with, with, with secondary or, or, or bad right, ingredients. I'm, I'm not going to put my name on that. No, no, thank you. So what was happening is, is many people were coming and saying, no, we're not going to do it because it's just a, a busted, messed up piece of marble. Big block. Until Michelangelo, this little not so well-known sculptor, apprentice, said, I'll give it a shot. And he, and he carved this masterpiece of David. And when he was asked about it, like, where, where did, like, why did you take on this role? He said, he said, it wasn't about the quality of the marble. He said, I just had to strip away everything that wasn't David. In the same way, when God looks at us, he, he, we might think that we're, we're a kind of an imperfect or broken or busted piece of marble. But in reality, all God wants to do is strip away the things that are not us, that are not Him. Just chip it away. The sin, the doubt, the weakness, the, the, the places that were broken, like all of those places, that's where God wants to just, let me, let me just chip that away. Let me get rid of it. God doesn't want all the extra stuff. He, he, it, all He wants us to come down to being is just the saint. And when He sees us, He doesn't see just a busted block of marble. He sees the saint that he's calling us to be. I mean, you don't have to look any further than the three that were on the, on the, on the mountain with Jesus. Because when God calls Peter, he doesn't call the Simon the fisherman who can't fish. <laughs> Notice that every time in the Scripture, he's always not catching fish. Just saying. He doesn't just call Simon the fisherman... When he sees Simon the fisherman, that everybody else sees Simon the fisherman, when Jesus calls Simon the fisherman, he's seeing Peter the Pope. And he's saying, you follow me. We'll strip away everything that's not the Pope. We'll strip away everything that's not the saint. Because that's what I'm calling you to be. When God looks at us, he sees the same thing. Not what we define ourselves by, 
Not what somebody else might define ourselves, define us by. But when God looks at us, he sees, oh, no, I'm calling you. Not as you think you are or as someone else defines you, but I'm calling you the saint that I see. As we continue in this Lenten season, we can rest assured that Jesus is who he says he is. Because the mystery of the transfiguration, like the Old Testament, is fulfilled in him. But we can also rest assured that, that God, because of Jesus is who he says he is, and because Jesus is also a man, that God also has a plan for us as well. And no despair, no hurt, no, no sin, no struggle, nothing is too big for him. All he wants to do is strip those things away that are not of him. Today when we come to this Mass, God, God, God wants to feed us. He wants to, he wants to make that light that lives inside of us grow. He wants to bring the saint that lives inside of us out. He wants to strip away and clean off anything that might mess it up so that his image can be stamped on us more strongly. That this Lent, that, that, that we could make him more visible and more well-known in us. May today as we come to this Mass, we, we allow the Lord to feed us in particular in the places that we might feel most sensitive, that we might feel most hurt or most broken, so that His grace can reign and His grace can have a real impact. I don't know about you, but I, I, I want to look like what Jesus wants me to look like. I, 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 I want the, the, His grace to shine forth. So may today God allow all the things that mess up that image like, let, let's give him permission just to remove him so that we can be the saint that he's calling us to be.